good morning. The scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Slavery in America, you know, lasted approximately 200 years officially. And during that time, most white Americans considered themselves Christian. And one of the ways, one of the ways that they justified and reconciled their Christianity with the institution of slavery was the belief that black men and black women were better off as slaves because they were exposed to the gospel. Because you understand that black slaves were allowed to gather for worship. But in those gatherings, it was required that a white preacher had to oversee it. And consequently, the white preacher had to preach. And in that context, the preacher would preach sermons aimed at keeping the slaves in line. One former slave, a man named Peter Randolph, who later on became a Baptist preacher, he put it this way. He said, in Prince George County, Virginia, there were two meeting houses intended for public worship. Both were occupied by the Baptist denomination. These houses were built by William and George Harrison, they were brothers, that their slaves might go there on the Sabbath and receive instruction, such as slave-holding ministers would give. The prominent preaching to the slaves was, Servants, obey your masters. Do not steal or lie, for this is very wrong. Such conduct is sinning against the Holy Spirit and is base ingratitude to your kind masters who feed, clothe, and protect you. Many, many of these so-called Christian preachers, beloved, therefore would use texts like Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. They would use texts like the one that we come to this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. And these texts were used, or better yet, they were misused. They were misused in an attempt to keep slaves in subjugation and accepting their abuse and their bondage. But it is important for us to understand, beloved, that the Bible 
is not a book of bondage. The Bible is a book of freedom. The gospel comes to set men and women free. And anyone, anyone, beloved, who uses the Bible to justify bondage or to justify abusive servitude is misreading and misusing the Word of God. Texts like these, Ephesians chapter 6 and, and verse 5, and 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, texts like these are not written to keep men and women in bondage. In fact, beloved, if you understand these texts properly, these texts come to men and women in bondage, showing them and reminding them, one, that you are actually free. And two, that you have the power now in the gospel of Jesus Christ to live freely for God even while chains remain on your feet. That's important to understand. As we come to difficult texts like these, It's important to understand these texts are given so that men and women know that even in bondage, God is with you. And that you are free. It's important to understand because despite the inconsistent and insidious Use of the Bible by some. Gloriously, Christianity thrived among the slave population. Thrived amongst the slave population despite the misuse and despite the abuse of the Word of God in that context. It thrived despite that because of the sovereign power that is the gospel of God. The Bible reminds us, right, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the very familiar passage of Scripture, that the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God to overcome sin. And the sin that it has the power to overcome is not just my sin, but it's the power to overcome sin in others. Unrighteousness in others. It is the power of God to live for Christ in a faithless world. It is the power of God to live godly in the face of ungodliness. That's really what our text is teaching, right? That's really what it is teaching. It's about the power of the gospel. And how do you live godly in the midst of ungodliness? How do you live faithfully and free in the midst of unfaithfulness and bondage? You live by the power of God. You understand the power of the gospel. And it frees you to serve Christ despite the sin of others. Our text this morning, I think, raises and answers the question, how do servants or slaves live godly in the midst of ungodliness? And the answer is clear. They do so through the gospel, through the power of God. And last week, last week, we saw this, didn't we? Last week, we saw this in our call to submit to governments, just and unjust. This morning, we see it in the call of servants. We see it on the domestic front of servants and slaves being subject to masters, both just and unjust. 
just. And our text this morning reminds us of this practice of submission that is based upon the person of submission. This practice of submission that servants were called to is based upon the person of submission who calls them to it. See this practice of submission, right? Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 reminds us, if we didn't know so already, that our closest relationships are often our most challenging ones. Whether it is husband and wife, whether it's parent and child, and in this case, servant and master. Our closest relationships become our most challenging ones to live faithfully for Christ. None more so than the relationship between a a slave and his master. Difficult. It's difficult for our 21st century ears to kind of get our minds around the idea of slavery. And the common and acceptable practice of it. But in the time that Peter was writing, when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, slavery was common and acceptable. In fact, the question in society at that time was not so much if you should own or have slaves, but the question was how were you to treat them? Now, it's, again, it's important for us to get some um, context as we seek to wrestle with the issues in our own history here in America that we understand that slavery was different in the time of the apostles. Slavery was different than in our country. Their slavery was not race-based. Their slavery was not perpetuated by the the cruelty and inhumanity and the violence of man-stealing and racism. In fact, most in this context were, were domestic workers, servants and wards of the homeowner. But even though the vast majority of the people to whom Peter is writing as servants were were domestic workers and they were wars of those who owned the homes in which they resided, it was still an unpleasant experience. And being a servant was attended with many cruelties of exploitation and abuse both financial abuse and physical exploitation and abuse. So it's important to understand, beloved, it's important to understand that the slave system, wherever it is practiced, is a wicked thing. For it undermines and it destroys the humanity of both slave and slave owner. No one, no one desired to be a slave. That was not the goal of life. No one wanted to be in this type of servitude. But, beloved, when the gospel comes, Okay, and the gospel doesn't just come to people in circumstances that they desire to be in. The gospel comes wherever you are. And when the gospel comes, when it came to the servants, it didn't come and immediately set them free from the bonds of their servitude. what it did do, beloved, and what it always does, 
that no matter where you are, it comes and for the first time, it sets you free to live for the glory of Christ. Even, even in the midst of the bonds of slavery. Now what does it say? It says, chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, we saw last week, right? We, we saw and we tried to unpack a little bit this idea of submission and, and what it means. Submission is yielding the way, you remember. It is complying with the wishes and will of another. It is willingly giving up your place so that others might have the way. Not because they are better, remember? Not because they are better, but because God ordains authority for his purposes. For his purposes. And therefore, we are called as the servants of God to acknowledge the authorities that God has placed over us and to acknowledge those authorities with respect. With respect. I was reminded this week of respect has oftentimes to do with titles and how we address people. My wife reminded me that when, 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 when she first moved down here and uh, she started going to church with me, that she was taken back by how many people addressed the pastor by his first name. Isn't that right, Rich? Rich, Rich back there. We come to church and people say, hey, hey, Rich, how you doing? And she was like, I would never call Pastor Barry by his first name. I've never called a pastor by their first name or just their last name. It is either Pastor Barry or Reverend Barry. <laughs> and the idea beloved, don't, don't get me wrong, the idea is not that those who are addressing the pastor by their first name and those of you who address me by my first name are not showing disrespect. But in my wife's understanding and many understanding, respect often is demonstrated in how you address people. And addressing them by the title that shows the authority which, which they have been given. That's why I mentioned last week that I never called President Trump, Trump. Or Obama, Obama. It's President Obama. President Trump. No matter how much I might dislike their policies, or even dislike the person, God says to be respectful. And for me, that means addressing them with the title. Servants are to honor and obey their masters with all respect. Addressing them with the authority that God had ordained them to have. And beloved, I, I, you know, as we saw last week, we understand that this is not easy. This is not easy. You think it's difficult for you, depending on your political persuasion, to address the president or politicians with respect? How much more difficult would it have been for a servant to be respectful to a master who was disrespectful and dishonoring 
And so the first thing we understand, beloved, that God calls these servants and consequently to us in this submission, it is hard. And anyone, anyone, beloved, who says that submission is easy apparently has never really practiced it well. And it would be particularly difficult for a slave as one being held against their wishes to practice submission. And if told, and if told that you were to practice submission and your master was a good master, a just person, then perhaps you could find your way to doing just that. To doing just that. You could find your way to submitting to them and being rewarded for your submission with great success. But the Christian servant here, beloved, is called to submit to the mean and the unjust ones. Ungodly leadership is hard to swallow. I get it. Ungodly leadership is hard to swallow. Mean and unjust authority is difficult to take. Therefore, and consequently, beloved, disrespecting and even disobeying unjust and ungodly authority is easy. It is easy. You easily slip into that. It's easy to justify being disrespectful when the authorities are being disrespectful. It's easy to justify being unkind when those in authority over you are being unkind. It is easy to justify reviling unjust authorities when that unjust authority is reviling you. That's easy. Here's the truth of the matter. That God does not call his people just to do the easy thing. On the contrary, it is in, and here's the point, beloved, it is in the crucible of life where we glorify God most. Submitting to good and godly leadership doesn't take much effort. But submitting to ungodly authority, being respectful of unjust leader, takes an uncommon power. And that, beloved, is the difference that the gospel makes. That is the power of the gospel. Enduring, enduring with grace is the mark of Christianity. That's how you know that Christ has come. That's how you know that Christ has come and made the difference. Everyone can sing and dance on sunny days. But where are the saints who sing and dance in the rain? Everyone, beloved, everyone shouts hallelujah on the mountaintop. But those who know their God best sing his praises in the valley. This is the testimony of Job, is it not? As he was going through the difficulties and the trials of his life, suffering as it were unjustly. What did you say? Job 13 and 15? The old King James. 
Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Isn't that what Habakkuk says? In one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the field and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And beloved, the idea here in this text, the idea here is not to justify the cruelty of slavery, God forbid. That is not the point. The lesson is not about the slaves. The lesson is not about the slave owners. The lesson here is about the grace and the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even in the toughest circumstances, you have in Christ the power to practice submission. Therefore, that which is hard in Christ, you come to understand that it is good. At least that's what the Bible says. This is amazing. This is amazing. Look what the text says, beloved. That which is hard to do, says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing? Few things, beloved, glorify God more than when we endure injustice, mindful that God knows and will vindicate his people. He says this is a good thing. This is a gracious thing. That word gracious there, <laughs> beloved, literally means good. This is a Godward thing. This is a pleasing thing pleasing when you are mindful. See that right there? When you are mindful of God. He says in verse 20 that it, again, he uses that same word in verse 20. This is a gracious thing when you realize it in the sight of God. This is good when you're mindful of who God is. This is good when you know that you're living your life under the oversight of God. It reminds me, it reminds me of Joseph, beloved. No one, no one could say that they suffered more injustice than Joseph did. No one could say that they were treated more wrongly than Joseph was. No one could testify to the cruel and unjust punishment that Joseph received. And yet, through it all, because, beloved, Joseph was always mindful of who God is and always mindful of the power and the providence of God, in the end, Joseph could say, this was a good thing. A good thing. It was a gracious thing. Why? It is good because it is God's will. It is hard to imagine that suffering and justice is God's will. But, beloved, it is. It is. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, right? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Yes, I know it often feels strange. 
it often feels, and, and, and our understanding of it is foreign to our understanding of what life should be. When Joseph received that coat of many colors, he had no idea that he was about to be thrown down into a pit. That pit would have been totally foreign to him. It may feel strange and seem foreign, but beloved, this is the pattern of the saints in the world from the very beginning. This is why it shouldn't be strange to you that when you are faithful, you are treated unjust. It shouldn't be strange to you when you are seeking to live for Christ that you are falsely accused and persecuted. It's what the Bible says is your portion. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, right? For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, thank you, Lord, for granting me faith to believe in Christ and the privilege of worshiping him, but the Bible says that is not the only privilege you've been given. You've also been given the privilege of suffering for him. Well, Lord, you can take that one back. I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll take the faith. You know, I'll take that. But you can have that other part. I don't want that privilege. No, beloved. It is the will of God that we glorify him in trusting Christ, but it is also the will of God that we glorify him through suffering for Christ's sake. And this is a good thing. It doesn't always feel good, and we may wonder why at times, but soon we realize if we just hold on a little while longer, we realize that it is good not only because it is God's will, but it is good because it opens us up to God's grace. It opens us up to God's grace, beloved. You do understand that God's grace is upon those who need it most. Now, it's amazing to me what the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 6. Right? Just the first sentence there. But he gives more grace. Okay? Just think about that. Okay? More grace. More grace. Now, if I'm understanding grace rightly, if I'm understanding grace biblically, the grace that I already have, I don't deserve. And yet, the, God, the Bible says that in my moment of need, God gives me more, more, more grace, beloved, more grace. Now that is important to understand because God doesn't waste grace. That's why I'm, I'm listening to people sometimes, a mother, she might be struggling with one child and she's trying to figure out, there's one child chasing them all around trying to figure, what am I going to do? She's pulling her hair out. And then she sees a mother that has four children. And she's like, man, I don't know how you do it with four children. Well, of course you don't. Because you have one child, Grace. God isn't giving you four children, Grace. You get four children, and you're going to get four children, Grace. He's not wasting his grace. Gives it as you need it. That's what the songwriter says, right? He giveth more grace when burdens grow greater. He sendeth more, great, more strength when labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. 
beloved, you can't, af- you can't avoid. Just, just reconcile with this. You can't avoid all suffering and know the Savior intimately. It doesn't happen. It won't happen. You want to know Jesus, then you're going to have to say like Paul said, I want to know him. Not just in the power that raised him from the dead, but in the communion of his suffering. In the difficult moment, that's when Jesus shows himself best. Because those who are practicing this submission, as difficult as it seems, are doing so because he has set the pattern for this submission. And you look to him as the person who exemplifies this submission. And the submission that the gospel requires, beloved, is the submission that because of the gospel, Jesus Christ accomplished. Therefore, understand that submission demanded is submission demonstrated. Christ did it for us. He went there. He been there. He did that. When I was in high school, um, I remember one day going out to football practice. As we were making our way out to football practice, one of the other players came along, and I guess he had been in the class where they were talking about leadership and what leaders do and things like that. And so he came up to, the, to our coach, and he said, Coach, I learned today that a leader never does anything, a leader doesn't ask his followers to do anything that he himself isn't willing to do. And the coach said, yeah, that may be true, but I'm not about to go out there and run five laps around this field, but you are. (laughs) Now get on the field. Well, beloved, that football coach wasn't going to demonstrate what he demanded. But God never, never asked of us anything but what he himself is willing to do. And so we see it here, beloved. God doesn't require of us anything that he has not already done in Christ Jesus for us. And that which we are called to do, indeed, to suffer and endure injustice, is because Jesus Christ did it first. He suffered in our steps. I mean, we suffer in his steps. What the Bible says, right? We suffer in his steps. Verse 21. For to you, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is not just our Savior, he is our example. And to be a Christian, beloved, is to belong to Christ. That's what it means. To be a Christian is to belong to Christ. And therefore, to be a Christian is to live like Jesus. Years ago, there was this fad going around. Perhaps some of you had it on your wrist, wearing a t-shirt called WWJD, right? 
What would Jesus do? And it was faddish. It was kind of trite. And, and some people made a lot of money off of it. Perhaps you gave them some. But you know what, beloved? It still is a legitimate question. I mean, what would Jesus do in the midst of my trial, in the midst of my circumstances? I am suffering unjustly. What would Jesus do? Jesus told his disciples, right? Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19 is one place. He told them in several places. He told them very simple. Follow me. Follow me. Now today, when we follow someone on Twitter, right, that's where we do our following, right? When we follow someone on Twitter, we follow them to find out what they're doing. We follow them to find out what they're saying, as if it matters. We follow them somehow because we want to know how they're feeling. But when Jesus isn't looking for Twitter followers, When Jesus tells his disciples to follow him, he is not just saying, follow me and I will feed you. Follow me and you will walk on water. Follow me and you will see people raised from the dead and the sick be healed. He is not just saying, follow me and watch what I do. He says, follow me and follow my example. Follow me in the way I love. Follow me in the way I serve. Follow me in the way I give. Follow me in the way I suffer for the glory of God. Follow Christ. We suffer in his steps because we follow him. And if you this morning are finding it difficult, I mean, you might think it is too large a task. Here is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here is Jesus Christ, the impeccable one, the eternal son of God come down from heaven. And then he, this one, says, follow him, me, my frail, sinful self, my fickle heart. Follow him. Well, if you find it hard to follow Jesus, then just follow somebody who is following Jesus. Right? That's what Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You can't follow Christ, then just follow somebody who's following Jesus. Follow. Follow. Follow that example. And what is that example? Beloved, the Bible says that Jesus suffered much indignation, And yet, he did not show indignation in return. Jesus was threatened, and he did not threaten in return. Jesus was beat, but did not beat in response. He was unjustly arrested and unrighteously accused, and yet he told Peter, Peter, put your sword away. And this is the Peter, the one who pulled the sword in defense of Jesus, who is now saying, put the sword away. What Jesus taught Peter and what you and I are so pressed this morning to learn is that you don't fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. Let's stop it, beloved. Let's stop it. We follow in his steps because he was willing to suffer in our place. That's why we follow him. We follow in his steps because he was willing to suffer in our place.
Laodicea in verse 25, 24 through 25, right, of our text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were strained like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Beloved, the passion of Christ, the suffering of Jesus was on two accounts. One, as our example, and two, as our substitute. He did it for us that we might not only follow him, but that now we might have the power to do so. He doesn't just tell us to follow him. He makes the way. And in dying on the cross and redeeming us from our sin and giving us Holy Spirit empowers us now to follow after him. He did it for us. He did it for you. He bore your sin. He bore your sin. You know what Adam and Eve discovered the moment they fell into sin? And you, don't, you may not think about this much, but you know what Adam and Eve discovered, beloved? They discovered how heavy sin is. I don't think anybody has ever felt the weight of sin like Adam and Eve did until Jesus Christ upon the cross. You know what he did on the cross? He bore our sins. The weight of them. The weight of them. Somebody said, he's not heavy. He's my brother. Well, my brother is too heavy for me to carry. His sins and my sins. But Jesus says, he's my brother and sister. And their sins are not too heavy for me to carry. And he carried our sins upon the cross. But he didn't just bore our sins, beloved. The Bible says he also took our punishment. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. Sin requires bloodshed. Yours or Jesus Christ, which one will it be? Because he took those stripes and shed his blood for my sins, my blood will not have to be shed. My sins he took. My Punishment for sin he received. And by his stripes, the Bible says, I'm healed. Not my own stripes. He took the stripes that were meant for me. He bore our sins. He took our punishment. And even now, beloved, through all the difficulties, he shepherds our souls. He shepherds our souls. We all, we all like sheep, like sheep have, had gone astray, beloved. Each one of us, the Bible says, turning to our own way. I don't know about you, but I knew I was lost until Jesus found me. I was lost until Jesus found me. I, I was poor. And I thought I was rich. 
I was dirty. And I thought I was clean. And that is until Jesus came, beloved. I was blind. And I thought I could see. Until Jesus came. The shepherd of my soul. The overseer of my spirit. He came. And he cleansed me. He came and he found me. He came and he opened these blinded eyes that I may see. The songwriter says, my sin's too heavy for me to carry. He bore my sins for me. My guilt too great for me to take. He took those stripes for me. For me he lived and for me he died that I might live for him. For me the cross, him crucified, that I might live for him. He came to seek and save the lost and all who call on him. He paid the price, whatever the cost. Now all I give to him. For me he lived, for me he died, that I might live for him. For me the cross, him crucified, that I might live for him. He is the pattern. And that's why we can practice for the glory and the majesty of our God. Let us pray.